Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Twenty-year-old Casey Schwartzmeyer overdosed on heroin. Lying next to her in the living room was her packed suitcase. She was to leave for rehab the very next day. Tragically, she died six days later. But she left a legacy of hope and understanding conveyed in her lovingly written obituary. Here is a short excerpt. Casey never wanted to be defined only by her addiction and mistakes. She was so much more than that. She made it clear if she was to ever pass as a result of it, she wanted people to know the truth with the hope that honesty about her death could help break the stigma about addicts and get people talking about the problem of addiction that is taking away so many young lives. It goes on to say, addiction doesn't discriminate. It will take hold and destroy anyone in its path, including the families and people who love them. Addiction hides in the faces of everyday people all around us. Casey isn't just another statistic or just another one gone too soon. She was a great heart with a bright future and a gift that the world lost and can never be replaced. So the best way to honor Casey is for people who read this or knew her to think twice before you judge an addict. According to her mother, Michelle Schwartzmeyer, Casey had said to her before she died, tell them my story. Secrets will help nobody. I would want to help someone else to make them feel less alone, even if it's just one person. Well, her legacy has reached thousands, if not millions of people. It's touching, but so tragic. It is very tragic. Addiction in all of its forms, it's an epidemic today. Mm -hmm. Lives, young and old, from every socioeconomic background, race, religion, sexuality, gender identity, these lives are literally hijacked. Mm -hmm. Addiction does not discriminate, as her obituary said. True. Yeah. I think we should define addiction though, Walker. We all may have an idea of what it is, but let's just get on the same page with it here. Right. According to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors That become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Substances or behaviors, so not just alcohol or drugs. Addiction can be much further reaching. Yes, though according to the 2020 Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Survey on Drug Abuse and Mental Health, alcohol is in fact the most commonly abused substance in America. Hmm. Apparently, 10.2% of people aged 12 years of age or older reported struggling with an alcohol use disorder. Over 10% over the age of 12? Mm -hmm. That is quite a large portion of the population. 28.3 million, in fact. Holy cow. The Addiction Center also remarked that the number of alcohol-related deaths rose in 2021. Well, maybe that's not so surprising when you think of the social challenges of that year. Right. This rate rose almost 34% to 52,000. Now, this figure didn't include the additional 56,000 deaths which occurred as a result of cirrhosis or chronic liver disease either. Wow, that's pretty disturbing. Alcohol is so accessible, though, and so ingrained in our social fabric. So is it really a wonder 
that there's a higher rate of alcohol addiction as compared to other drugs or other addictions? Perhaps not. I would think that it would be a major contributing factor. Yeah. So if alcohol is the most common substance addiction in the United States, I would think that cigarettes and smoking must be a close second, again, due to the fact that cigarettes are legal Mm -hmm. and socially acceptable to a certain extent, maybe a little bit less now these days. You're right. Nicotine addiction is the second most common substance addiction in the United States. The same report reveals that 8.5% of people aged 12 and older struggled with nicotine in 2020. Hmm. Now, this percentage works out to approximately 23.6 million Americans. Wow. But the number of deaths from tobacco use is huge. 480,000 annually. Holy moly. 480,000 deaths annually? That's scary. Although these are the top two addictions, 5.1% of Americans over 12 report a marijuana use disorder. Really? Mm-hmm. There's a belief in the addiction community that marijuana addiction may be growing, possibly due to the increased potency of marijuana over recent years as well. Wow, that's really interesting, particularly because pot is not as easily obtained in most states. I wonder what the Canadian stats look like, though, now that it's been legalized here. I wonder. We have a real opioid addiction issue in Canada, though I know it's felt in many countries internationally as well. Mm -hmm. The percentage, as per this survey, in the States was fairly low at 1.1% in heroin addiction at 0.3%. But according to the Addiction Centre, in 2021, deaths from opioid use rose to over 100,000. Wow. Which was a 30% increase from the year before. Well, from what we hear from professionals on the ground who are trying to help this population, Mm -hmm. that number is skyrocketing. Well, I came across a shocking stat too. Heroin abuse is increasing among young women. Why? Why among young women? I'm not sure, but heroin deaths are on the rise as well, many of which have been caused by fentanyl-laced heroin. Yeah, it's like playing Russian roulette with street drugs. The Centre for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto, Canada, otherwise known as CAMH, explains that the four C's are needed to create and continue an addiction. The four C's? Yeah. So the first one is craving. Mm. So you're craving that substance. The second one is control. So that loss of control of the amount or the frequency that you're using the substance. Okay. Then there's the compulsion to use the to use whatever substance it is. And then... It's the consequences. So you continue to use that substance despite any negative consequences that are coming your way. And I can attest to all of these, having been a former smoker. Okay. An addiction can begin in a variety of ways and circumstances, like social experimentation, or even sometimes after an injury or surgery, like with prescription meds. For me, it was just being a rebellious teenager, and plus smoking was still kind of cool in the 80s. So not cool now. No. I can't even imagine you as a smoker here. I know. What on earth causes addiction? Well, it's pretty complicated. The substance or behavior at the heart of the addiction affects that reward center in your brain. It produces feelings of pleasure. And so this can develop into a substance use disorder, which varies in severity, and in its worst form, it's addiction. There are other factors which contribute to our risk of developing a substance use disorder, correct? Oh, yeah, most definitely. For example, with me, I equated having a smoke with having a break Mm -hmm. and as a way to relax, much like many regard having a drink, right, at the end of the day. So this really hit my reward center in my brain, I guess, and entrenched that behavior in my daily life. 
But genetics, mental health issues, and environmental factors are all part of that picture too. It is, it's kind of complicated. But there is that, as I mentioned, that overall mental health picture too. I actually read in researching this episode that roughly half of the people with mental health conditions will experience a substance use disorder. And those with a substance use disorder can experience mental health conditions too. Like take the beautiful songbird that the world just lost, Sinead Mm O'Connor. She struggled for decades from mental health and substance abuse problems, though we still don't really know what the cause of death was. Needless to say, she walked a very difficult path. So true. This brings to mind the fact that substance use disorder and addiction can really affect anyone. Mm -hmm. There are so many celebrity stories of substance abuse and addiction. I wonder if their unusual lifestyle leave them more susceptible to the experiencing addiction. Yeah, maybe. Sadly, many celebrities have lost their lives due to their addictions, and yet others have managed to successfully recover. Mm -hmm. Demi Lovato is one celebrity who is very open about her struggles with alcohol and drug abuse, bipolar, and eating disorders. Mm. Now, she was 17 when she tried cocaine for the first time, and apparently her cocaine addiction was so all-consuming, she felt the need to smuggle cocaine onto a flight because she could not cope longer than 30 minutes without it. Wow. Yeah, she said every day is a battle. Oh my gosh. Then there's Matthew Perry of Friends fame. He recently wrote about his substance abuse problems in his book, Friends Lovers in the Big Terrible Thing. Matthew stated... I had to wait until I was pretty safely sober and away from the active disease of alcoholism and addiction to write it all down. And the main thing was, I was pretty certain that it would help people. Yeah. He credits Alcoholics Anonymous and a strict routine for helping him. Yes, there are so many celebrities like Russell Brand, Robert Downey Jr., and Steven Tyler. These are just a few who've struggled to beat their heroin addictions. That can't have been easy. Bradley Cooper, too, is open about his alcohol addiction. It's just relentless, isn't it? It's like a monster in the closet. So many. Yeah, it's crazy. But let's talk about behavioral addiction. Okay. Apparently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, also referred to as the DSM-5, only lists a gambling disorder as a recognized behavioral addiction. Mm -hmm. But there's still some debate over whether other impulse control disorders are also considered addictions because there are similarities Mm -hmm. between impulse disorders and substance abuse addictions. Right. Like what about sex addictions and stealing? Yeah, exactly. The American Society of Addiction Medicine points out that behavioral addictions are similar to drug addictions, except that the individual is not addicted to a substance, but he, she, or they are addicted to the behavior or the feeling experienced by acting out that behavior. Okay, perhaps excessive exercise, eating, and shopping too then. Yeah, there's so many examples. People often flippantly say, I'm a shopaholic, but compulsive buying is actually a real problem for some people. Mm -hmm. Lena St. Clair from San Antonio, Texas, has shared her struggle with a shopping addiction on TikTok. Her shopping addiction led to dropping out of college, becoming a hoarder, and eventually she sadly became bankrupt. She started on this path originally searching for deals in vintage clothing with thoughts to resell. Sounds familiar? Yeah. She publicly shared her experience on TikTok with the hope of raising awareness about the problem. Well, recovering from a shopping addiction would be really hard because we all need to shop. Tricky. Right? We need to clothe ourselves. We need to get food, toiletries, whatever. So you could never totally abstain from the troubling behavior itself. Well, this is exactly it. 
Miss St. Clair actually talks about this. She says, I'm a recovering shopping addict and I'm about to go shopping. Mm. Now, unlike many abstinence-based addictions such as alcoholism, shopping is something that cannot be avoided when you live in a predominantly capitalistic society. Right. She explained, because I am an addict who is about to do something they're addicted to, my heart is already beating faster and I'm getting feelings of obsession, feelings of excitement. Wow. She's made progress, though. She has some sort of techniques she uses. For instance, she waits to shop until 30 minutes before the store is about to close. Okay. She limits her time spent shopping that way. Mm -hmm. She also takes her dog out with her so she can't enter stores. Okay. She also says that she tries to shop only once a month. Wow, that's got to be so tough. Another troublesome addiction is sex addiction, which Mm -hmm. is either being addicted to sex itself or watching pornography. This addiction can be disastrous, obviously, for relationships, but it can also compromise safety if you're seeking sex in dicey contexts and can lead to a myriad of health and even legal issues. Apparently, 58% of sex addicts report having been involved in some sort of a legal activity. And then there are the internet and gaming addictions too. Mm -hmm. There are. As confirmed by the Cleveland Clinic, behavioral addictions can occur with any activity, that might be capable of stimulating your brain's reward system. Well, not surprising then, is it? Not at all. So some lesser known addictions, Walker, tattoos. I might actually be in trouble there with that one. (laughs) Hand sanitizer, plastic surgery, piercings, nutmeg. I don't get it. Toads (laughs) and eating glass, just to name a few. Yikes, toads. You know, I, I think it's from the licking. It's a psychedelic addiction. Oh. Yeah, you can lick toads. But only but a certain it, kind of psychedelic toad. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, but what about an addiction to eating mattresses? Yeah. Do you know that show, My Strange Addiction? I think it's on TLC. No, I haven't watched it, but I've heard of it. Okay, it features people who have succumbed to all manner of odd addictions. And one of the strangest I saw on that show was a young man who was compelled to pull out clogs of hair out of people's bathtubs and bathroom sinks. And he went to enormous lengths to satisfy this addiction, as well as also to hide it from the people he was visiting. I'll just say right here, I hate doing that. I know. You know, though, I feel great empathy for these people. Mm. Shows like this one may help some, but it's pretty much really voyeuristic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Behavioral addictions have the potential, like drugs and alcohol abuse, to really negatively impact an individual's life and the lives of their family and friends. So it's a serious issue. Mm -hmm. There can be many physical and mental ramifications. And financially, too. Yeah, yeah. People can gamble or shop away their homes, lose Mm -hmm. their jobs as their addiction tears them away from the routine of their daily life, I would imagine. It's terrible. It is terrible. Addictions, as Michelle Schwartzmeyer said, will take hold and destroy anyone in its path, including the families and people who love them. Mm -hmm. Jess Phillips, personal coach and brilliant host of the podcast Living Out Loud, is here with us today to explore this topic more deeply. Jess is an expert in anxious attachment, codependency, and addiction, which she approaches in an authentic and novel way. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Jess. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. So how did your life path lead you to this important healing work that you're doing today? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's actually a question that I tried to hide for quite a while, too. Interesting. 
yeah, I just kind of came up with the story like, oh, you know, just went into the helping profession and, you know, and I think the more comfortable I became uh, with myself and my own recovery um, from a lot of the things that I work with people on, um, I got more comfortable sharing my story. And it was interesting that the more I shared my story, I think the more comfortable other people became at sharing Mm -hmm. their story with me. So um, it worked out well in the end, but yeah, I was a very insecure teen. Um, My parents had put me into an all-girls private Catholic Academy uh, for high school. Yeah. And I got put in a year early. So I was already much younger than the other girls there. And it felt like debilitating for me, the anxiety, the fear. um, I just felt like everybody else knew what they were doing. And I had no manual. I was just, I felt frozen, but I think it was quite confusing for people because I looked confident on the outside, but on the inside, I didn't feel so good. So by grade Mm -hmm. nine, uh, my mom had taken me out and put me into a public school and I was very salesy about the whole thing. I said, I promise to keep my grades up. I promise to keep a good circle of friends. And, and honestly, I think within six months, uh, I was hanging out with the grade 11ers. I was smoking pot. I was drinking, I was smoking cigarettes, just anything to kind of get in with that crowd. And Mm -hmm. I think it was, I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but when I would drink, it would really soothe how I felt on the inside. Right. So I think naturally I just wanted to keep drinking because it felt much better than how I felt naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, that really progressed into probably a whole other podcast episode, but um, yeah, a tough, uh, a tough next, probably about eight years. Um, mm-hmm. So at 21, I kind of reset my life. Um, and I really had to kind of go back and start everything over. I had dropped out of high school. I didn't have a driver's license. All I knew how to do was bartend. So I went back to school, got a high school diploma, started working at a coffee shop and kind of like little by slowly just built my life back up. Mm-hmm. And then when I got led into university, to my surprise, um, I thought, well, what are you going to do? You know, I didn't yeah. have master life plan like a lot of my old friends did and they kind of had this clear direction so I thought I got a lot of help I got a lot of help by a lot of very um kind patient understanding people and yeah it it made me I don't think it I don't think it made me want to be one of those people at the time but I knew this might be something that I one day could do yeah so yeah. So at, at about 23, I guess, when I got led into university, started a path of, and a bit of trial and error, but it was always headed in the helping profession. Right, right. And now here you are. And how long have you been uh, officially helping and being this this coach for so many people through pretty difficult life yeah. experiences? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, when I was in university, probably about the last year, I got hired at a drug and alcohol treatment center. Um, so I was working kind of in the main office, doing a lot of intake work, um, you know, greeting the clients when they would come in, just a lot of like kind of administration behind the scenes work. Mm -hmm. And then once I finished school, um, 
I was able to start kind of supervising on some of the groups that the other counselors were doing. Um, I was able to run kind of small women's groups. Um, so it started there. So my, yeah, my journey started in the drug and alcohol field. And I stayed doing that probably till I was about 28. And then actually through my own experience too, I started to realize for myself and for watching other clients at the treatment center, it was kind of like this game of whack-a-mole. They were putting down the drugs or the drink per se. And then all of a sudden the binge eating is through the roof. The weight exactly. Roof, the smoking yeah. cigarettes is, you know, so mm-hmm. and myself too, I had quit smoking around that time. And it was so interesting that I just, it was almost this kind of like transfer addiction. Yeah. To- I had the same experience with quitting smoking. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, uh, I guess it's, fi- like- it's find your poison. You, yes. you know, you numb out this way and then, you know, you move on. If you're not doing that anymore, you find the next way that soothes those inner anxieties or uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. 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 So I really started to kind of notice that. And it was almost this kind of 2.0 version where, you know, I know some of my friends, they would eat or they would gain weight after quitting smoking. But for me, it looked, it looked like I was eating alcoholically and for the right. other people that I was working for, it was just, it was the volume was turned up on the amount. So it was yeah. that same kind of all or nothing behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually took my physical health into my own hands around that time um, and went back to the gym. I started to learn. Um, I did a certification in holistic nutrition and I started to learn the effects um, that sugar and, and processed flour have on our depression and anxiety and our mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's what really birthed the coaching. It was very um, nutrition focused at first and binge eating focused. And, and kind of as I've gone along, um, it's just interesting. It, it, it doesn't really matter who I'm working with. A, a lot of the underlying issues are the same. Sometimes they just manifest in different ways. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I would say in the past few years, it's the codependency and attachment. That's really, I think closest to my heart. So yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's something that you can, you have experience with and you can be your authentic self and bring forth the, the assistance and the guidance that people need. So you did touch on it a little bit, but how is your coaching different than uh, traditional therapy that people might expect? Yeah. Great question. Um, so traditional therapy, I think, I think the both worlds are really necessary. I'd say the the clearest way for me to put this is is coaching is a lot more uh, directive. Usually people who come for coaching might be at a different place than say somebody who has never really done therapy before or has ever done any coaching before. So maybe they know that there's something going wrong, but they're not sure exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that would be a great time to start coaching. Coaching is really when you are quite sure of the problem or the pattern. You just really have no idea how to stop it. So say, for example, you've been dating the same type of person for 15 years and now you're watching yourself do it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you just can't stop. So my program is quite psychoeducational. So there's a lot of content to work through. Um, A lot of the times people, I hear the same thing. I'm, I'm crazy. 
everybody will come on and say, I'm so crazy. I'm behaving crazy. And I say, we're not going to use the word crazy during this coaching. We're going to use the word confused. And hopefully yeah. by the end of the 10 weeks, you won't be as confused anymore because there's a reason we're acting the way that we're acting. So right. yeah, it's a lot more, um, there's a lot more accountability. It's more directive. The individual will kind of say, this is where I am, but this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Where in therapy, like I said, it's really, it's a slower process. It's mm-hmm. a necessary process. Uh, coaching isn't for everybody. Yeah. And, and therapy is a little bit more client directed. So really kind of helping the client explore um, some of the things that might be getting in their way um, at more of like a slow and steady pace. And coaching is more, it sounds to me like it's more tangible, a little bit, maybe even more practical in the daily life, like looking at piecing it apart and looking at what needs to be done to advance you towards your goals. Yeah. Yeah. And the accountability um, therein, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be, there's, there's, it's, it's definitely results focused where Mm -hmm. therapy might not be as results focused. Um, But yeah, there's a whole movement exploding with coaching right now because Mm -hmm. the kind of directive approach in coaching, I mean, even ethically, you can't do in therapy. So it's a very different style. A lot of people can take different courses to become coaches, but you just want to make sure if you're ever processing anything like um, attachment injuries or trauma, things like that, that, that your coach is qualified to be able to walk you through that because getting someone who might not have any experience or the educational background in that might be a little bit dangerous too. So mm-hmm. coaching is a huge movement that's exploding, um, but it's it's important to make sure that the person that you're working with um, can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. So do your research when you're selecting your coach, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love, I follow you on social media mm-hmm. and I find that your posts are so incredibly insightful, but they also look at some of these issues in slightly different ways than, you know, than maybe most of us have thought of before. You said something in a recent post, and I'm quoting you here. If you are struggling mentally, free time is not your best friend. And that totally resonated with me as an anxious person. Free time is not good for me. I need to have structure. I look and seek probably too much structure in my life. But Can you explain to me what motivated this post and and sort of what you mean by this? Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, for following and reading. A lot of the content that I write, I have either gone through myself personally. So I think um, that might be the added piece um, there that I I always want to remain authentic because I, I really don't believe that... I mean, if this has happened for somebody, great, but I don't believe that you do you know, the work and then all of a sudden you're just kind of magically cured and you never struggle with anything again. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't been my experience. Uh, do I feel 90% better than I used to? Of course, but there's still ups and downs and, and life is life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the posts, I, I get a lot of comments on how I live my life today. So even some of my friends kind of bust my chops sometimes and they're like, oh, you're running a marathon or, oh, you're doing this or, oh, you're doing that. And sometimes I have to stop and reflect. And the reason that I do these things is exactly what you just mentioned 
too much idle time, especially for somebody, and a lot of my readers have addiction, uh, addictive tendencies, Mm -hmm. too much idle time is really the devil. Mm -hmm. Because what can happen is, A, I'll get bored, right? And what do I do when I'm bored? I seek entertainment. Yeah. Um, Or maybe if I'm not in the best place mentally and the noise stops and I say to myself, oh, I'm not working out today or I'm too tired. I'm just going to lounge today or whatever it is. And this is not to say, and I, I make sure to say this in all of my posts, that rest days are super important. You know, being hyper structured isn't healthy either. So right. I, I make sure to say like, yes, for sure. The downtime is super important, but the sense of purpose that the structure gives me um, and my clients, such as eating well, moving your body, connecting with some type of a sense of community. Um, it, it really, it, it really proves to be quite helpful because I'm sure everybody has experience of maybe not feeling your best and just letting the thoughts take over. And I mean, you can sit in that for days, weeks, years. Mm -hmm. It can be a real down downward spiral. Yeah. That is very difficult to climb back out of. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So Jess, uh, gaslighting and narcissism, I wanted to talk about them for a couple of minutes here. They seem to be hot button topics today. Everybody's talking about them on social media. Could we be more narcissistic individually in a society than ever before? I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yes, it's definitely possible. Um, It's definitely possible, but I I like what you just said. And and yes, I agree that it is a term, um, especially narcissism. I think gaslighting is finally getting the attention that it deserves, but Mm -hmm. it's, it is easy to say, oh, you know, they're so narcissistic or, you know, my ex is so narcissistic because it is important that we're cautious around that term because, it is an actual uh, diagnosis. So, because a few years ago, it seemed passive aggressive was the term everybody was throwing around, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's true. I still see a lot of that today. It's that pendulum swing from passive aggressive or to aggressive, right? And that yeah. kind of fine art of becoming assertive is a very difficult thing to do. So, have we become more narcissistic as a society? I have a lot to say about what's happening right now as a society. You know, all I can say is if I was given a cell phone at 10 years old and I was scrolling and I was watching other teens or women, you know, take these selfies and look like they look and bikini shots and traveling all over around the world. I mean, I was insecure enough as it is. With being able to view any of that. So, yes, I guess the idea of us taking pictures of ourselves and, and putting this type of content out there, I think we are more isolated than ever before. Um, so I think that can contribute to us maybe displaying some more narcissistic tendencies, but is it actually narcissism? I'm not sure. I think it's the new way of people thinking that they are connecting with others, but that is not true connection behind these screens. So, right. and I think 
I, I think we're able to see a lot more than ever before. You know, I was joking with a friend the other day. I have this new fear of sharks now because all I see <laughs> shark videos. I, I, was, I was never privy to any shark videos 20 years ago. You That's clearly didn't grow up in the day of Jaws when it first I know. Out. I've always been terrified <laughs> since the 70s, but I hear you. I'm scared yeah. of them too. <laughs> yeah, so just see every time I open my phone now, it's a kayaker and a big shark comes. Or it's you need the crazy cat videos, Jess. Oh, yeah. They're the, they're much better. Plenty of those. Plenty of those. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think um, I don't think social media is helping anybody. I think we're able to label things differently now, whereas before, let's take my parents' generation for example what we would maybe see as narcissism today would be called something, you know, the patriarch of the family, the breadwinner, things like that. So I I think it's just, um, I think we have more information now to, uh, to, to kind of, to talk about and assess what's happening. We talked about a little bit right there. You mentioned isolation, Though we seem to be on the other side of it now, the pandemic has had a serious and lasting impact on mental health, mm-hmm. perhaps some of which we don't even know, really. It hasn't been in, uncovered the extent of it. Relationships we know have suffered and perhaps the ability to relate to each other as well. Maybe you can explain for us how people can find their feet again, you know, mm-hmm. in this post-pandemic world where we are now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really, really shook a lot of people. Complicated. Yeah, very complicated, very unnatural way of being. Um, it was almost like the great divide, right? Politics mm-hmm. got into it. Yeah, it was a definitely, it was a scary time. Um, and it's very interesting now. It's almost like, okay, we just don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like everybody moved on, right? Even when we were coming up with the questions for this interview, I thought, do we really need a pandemic question in there? Aren't we past this? And I thought, no, actually we're not. And we're not going to be past this for decades probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. I think too, especially when it comes to addiction or alcoholism, uh, I think it was devastating. Um, and, yeah. and I should add and food addiction because it was almost like, here's your permission, mm-hmm. right? Close the door, lock the door. You don't have to go anywhere. Everybody's baking bread and eating. Everybody's drinking a little bit more, right? But then we have the certain few who lose the power of choice when they pick up that drink or that drug or that food. Um and and it can become just a, a two-year binge. So I mm-hmm. think coming out of that, um, one of the biggest things that I see and I and I experienced it personally, it was one of honestly, I can't even remember if it was it just seems like all the dates are confused in my head too about COVID. Um, it was kind of when we reopened either the first time or the second time. And I remember it was it was dark out and I had to be somewhere for 7.30 p.m. And I remember looking at the clock and I'm like, am I really going to leave the house at 7 p.m.? It's It felt, and I'm, I'm social. I'm a, like, you know, I don't get nervous around other people. And I remember just trying to get me out of the house was like pulling teeth because I was so used to staying home. And I was in a group of people that evening 
and my voice was quivering. I was so nervous to talk because I hadn't been around that many people in a very long time. So the one of the biggest things that I've noticed, I don't know how many people have snapped back. And I'm not saying that they necessarily need to, but I think the social aspect of, of the isolation is still very much present. I think a lot of people choose to stay home mm-hmm. um, rather than go out and see their friends, right? And or what if they've lost their friends? What if they've lost their friends and their friends moved on and they don't know how to make new friends? Yes. You know what I mean? That social anxiety has kicked in. Maybe the alcohol has become their new best friend. Yes. And and that I imagine that's something you can hide too. So maybe not mm-hmm. everybody knows what's going on. Oh, yes. It's quite comforting, right? What? Why do we need to make plans when I can, you know, order a bunch of food or have a bottle delivered or, you know, yeah. smoke pot in the evenings, whatever it is. And again, not to say if this is what you're choosing to do, that's fine. But it's really about kind of, are we crossing that invisible line? Oh, yeah. um, I think that's a great topic, especially adult friendships in general. Mm-hmm. Pandemic or not, I think adult friendships are... Um, very difficult. And I think it's something that we need to be talking about more. Um, I actually never realized how lonely people were. Yeah, I, I kind of like to think that I'm like terminally unique and I was the only one experiencing loneliness or I'm the only one binge eating, but no, you know, loneliness is a really big deal for people. I think my, my best piece of advice for loneliness because we can we can call an old friend, we can set up a coffee date, we can go for dinner, but sometimes it's just a one-off and it doesn't mm-hmm. continue. Um, so I really, really, really encourage building a sense of community. Right. Yeah. Wherever that, whatever that looks like for you. Um, I think it's something that we can attend maybe weekly, even if it's awkward at first. Even if it's a running club and you have no idea how to run, uh, maybe volunteering somewhere, somewhere where there's kind of, and, and the same people see you quite yes. often. Mm-hmm. So it kind of ties back into a little bit of that structure um, and routine. But uh, yeah, loneliness is uh, is a very big deal. Well, in terms of authenticity, it seems critically important to our own healing from trauma and addiction. Can you help us understand why this is the case? Mm, yeah. Um, so I, I kind of describe it as we experience things in life. So maybe it's your first heartbreak, right? I feel like everybody has that first love where they they go into it quite blindly. The insecurities aren't there. The previous hurts aren't there. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is the last forever. And then we get our hearts ripped out and stomped on. And what happens? Little by slowly, we start to build this wall, right? Or we start to build this avatar. And and subconsciously, it's happening. We don't even realize. And we're saying, oh, that's never going to happen again. I'm never going to let anybody in enough to know that. It was like my own addiction, right? I went probably the first seven years, eight years without telling anybody that I was sober. Oh, I just don't drink. Oh, I just don't drink. Oh, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I wasn't at a place where I still felt ashamed. Um, I still felt very much attached to the old version of myself 
So I would hide these parts of myself. And I think we, a lot of us walk through life hiding these parts of ourselves in fear of being judged or in fear of being rejected, especially when it comes to dating, right? Because if you reject a stage character of me, it's going to sting, but it's not going to sting as bad as me being fully authentic and then you rejecting me. The real me. The real me. And, and, and then that ties into everything, right? That's what ties into the people pleasing. That's what ties into the codependency. Anybody who's had to cater to their parents' emotions as a child will learn how to start relationships and become the fixer and become the giver. And very quickly, can I figure out what you need before I even know what I need? Right. Thank you very much, Jess, for chatting with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. If you'd like to learn more about Jess Phillips, you can find her at at Jess Phillips Coaching and her podcast, which we highly recommend, Living Out Loud, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks so much, Jess. Thanks, Jess. Thank this you. It's been a lot of fun. I hope we get to talk to you again. Our conversation with Jess certainly highlighted the complexities of addiction. Mm -hmm. A particular interest to me, though, was the fact that one addiction can replace another. Yeah. Now, I knew when people quit smoking, for example, they may replace it with eating too much. But this really resonated with me for some reason during our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I also experienced this firsthand. Mm -hmm. I was at a loss every time I attempted to quit smoking. And there were many attempts, let me tell you. Because I lost my social smoking circles and I had no idea what to do to decompress at work or at mm. home. So snacks soon became the new smokes, mm. right? I found our chat with Jess really reassuring. There is a very real, practical, and effective way to help people with substance use disorders, addictions, or behavioral addictions. But when do you know that you have a problem? Well, Michelle Pugel, health writer for Healthline, outlined some warning signs to look out for so that you can try to determine whether your specific behavior is potentially a problem or worse, an addiction. Okay. Okay. So you can ask yourself these questions. Do you prioritize spending time taking part in a specific behavior or thinking about or arranging to take part in it? Hmm. Are you becoming more and more dependent on the behavior as a way to cope with your emotions? Perhaps you feel as if you need to do it to function. Right. Do you have difficulties changing this behavior even if you want to? Do you continue to take part in the behavior even when you try to stop? Hmm. Are you noticing you are neglecting or avoiding work, school, or family to take part in the behavior? Does the effect of taking part in the behavior need to be kept a secret? That's a big one. Do you find yourself denying, hiding, or downplaying the truth about your behavior? Hmm. And finally, and perhaps the most telling, do you experience feelings which are unpleasant when you try to stop? Wow, that is a powerful set of questions. Mm -hmm, it is. And according to certified addiction counselor Seth Fletcher, you can watch for warning signs in your loved ones as well. Okay, this is important. Sometimes people can be in too deep, right? Mm -hmm. Or be in denial. Right. Your loved one might be struggling if they're getting easily annoyed, nervous, or often appearing angry. Are they pointing the finger at others to blame for their behavior? Are they arguing and throwing temper tantrums? Are they having money troubles? Right. These are all pretty big red flags. So you would definitely know something was up. Mm-hmm. And awareness, I think, is a big part, right, of battling addiction. 
But how do you get your loved one into treatment if they don't want to go or they won't acknowledge that they have a problem? That's got to be really devastatingly tough. Well, there's support programs for family members, partners, and loved ones in these kinds of situations, and they aren't all that uncommon mm-hmm. either, particularly for you sometimes. These programs can teach you about how to communicate with your loved one, connect you with resources, as well as how to look after yourself. Yeah, my sister has a friend, a lifelong friend, who's struggled with heroin addiction uh, his entire life, and it's been very, very difficult. He's a lovely, beautiful, kind, and gentle soul. And I know that his family and friends and his partner who love him, they've had to deal with this. And it's been really, really hard. It would be so much better if there was a way to prevent developing an addiction, to avoid all of that pain and trauma and tragedy. Well, I can tell you, from what I've read, knowing your family history is very important. Right. Your risk of developing an addiction may be higher if you have a family member or members who have substance use disorder or behavioral addictions. Mm. And if there is an addiction in your family, take it seriously. Right. I know people who have family history of alcohol addiction and they don't think it affects them. Maybe they don't want to look it in the face. Maybe. Right? There is a genetic predisposition. It's a good idea to discuss your family history with your medical practitioner. Sounds like a plan. Yep. And you probably wouldn't be surprised to learn that simply being cautious with substances that have the potential to be addictive is pretty important. Avoiding or limiting your exposure to these kinds of substances is really key. Well, you're right. I'm not surprised. It is very easy to grab that glass of wine at the end of a long day. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It gets easier and easier. The more you do this as well, it can become habitual. It does. And that brings me to my next point, how we handle stress. Right. How we handle stress seems to be a topic that is finally getting the attention it deserves. Now, traditionally, people have handled their stress in ways that could be perceived as harmful. Right. We like to numb out. So maybe turn to exercise or a walk in nature instead of looking to the booze or edibles. There's so many techniques these days to manage stress, but I do want to just touch on prescription medication for a moment, Walker. It Mm -hmm. is so important to always follow your doctor's instructions for their use. And if you are feeling like you're becoming dependent, it's really critical that you speak to your healthcare professional right away. Yeah, this is really good advice. Dependence on prescription medication is a tricky one. Yeah. These meds are supposed to help you, not cause you additional, you know, problems. I know. Right? They're so powerful. They're very powerful. And it is a very, very common problem. Prescription drugs are highly addictive. And we know this. Just look at the opioid crisis. So we talked a little bit about techniques to manage stress. But what about treatment for full-blown substance use disorder, and behavioral addictions? Well, treatment differs depending on what each individual is struggling with, but there are a lot of options. There could be hospital monitoring or inpatient monitoring. That might be necessary if your healthcare professional expects that there might be dangerous withdrawal Mm -hmm. symptoms. That's a possibility with some substances. There also could be uh, medical treatment with medicines that could be administered to help alleviate the pain and suffering associated with withdrawal symptoms. Okay. And of course, there's counseling and education through inpatient or outpatient rehab programs. That's often recommended. And psychotherapy, group therapy, and support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, which we mentioned. These all provide safe spaces for support and guidance. Lots of options. Lots of options. But the key to Recovery Walker is reaching out for the help you need. The alternative, no matter what it might be, it's not worth it. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.